0: One, two, Friday's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, grab a crucifix. Seven, eight, better stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. Welcome to episode number six for Darkgate Horror Podcast. In this episode, I'll be looking at the role of dreams and nightmares in horror film, namely in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. I first started watching these films when they were new to video, way back in the 1980s, and watched a couple more times than I can count. did also see a couple of them in the theater, which dates me of course. A couple years ago, I finally said goodbye to my trusty VHS copies, which were in terrible condition from so many viewings, and bought the DVD box set. I'll talk about the set later as well. First, let's discuss what dreams and nightmares are, and then talk about their role in Nightmare on Elm Street. There's a great quote that I love from Edgar Allan Poe, sleep, those little slices of death, how I loathe them. So what are dreams? Dreams have been thought to be many things throughout time. In his book, The Dreaming Mind, Dr. Van Castle says that dreams can lead to making changes. Dreams were the stimulus for action in the case of Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and LBJ. Lincoln had prophetic dreams. Dreams which are prophetic or come true are called precognitive. One of the problems with precognitive dreams is that they often do not provide a perfect reproduction of the tragic events, some of the details are blurred or inaccurate. Dreams influence the world of ideas, innovations, and inventions, including scientists such as Descartes and Niels Bohr, because rules of logic are different and they work from a different angle. Dreams are often tied in with spiritual dimensions. Prophetic and religious icons often receive commandments by dream. Muhammad was given the Quran in dreams over the period of years. So let's look at the opinion of dreams. Early thinking regarding dreams stated that dreams often contained images of deities and animal or other forms, that messages were sent to a priest or group of people via a dream, And some spent time trying to interpret dreams. For example, the Mesopotamians and Hippocrates did this. Radical changes occurred in the 2nd to 8th centuries when St. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. This version became the definitive version even through the 19th century. But he mistranslated witchcraft as, quote, observing dreams, and thus applying the connotation of dream interpretation with witchcraft. During the Dark Ages, demons were thought to cause dreams, and they were forbidden. In the 17th and 18th centuries, dreams were recognized as mirroring character behavior, and development, and awareness that dreams could have powerful impact on waking behavior. Dreams liberated by philosophers, physicians, and psychologists at this time, and they said that it was not demons causing dreams. Dreams were extremely important during the Romantic era, which was the 19th century, that dreams became the source of rele- revelation and that they would tell the dreamer things in an instant that they had searched for for years many published ideas but it was not until the 20th century did things really shake up not until sigmund freud freud changed the view of dreams forever he stated that dreams are disguised sexual wishes others have said that sexual desires play out in dreams going back hundreds of years don't get me wrong i think really highly of freud as opposed to many of my fellow psychology student friends and I defend him often. But Freud and his followers played down previous work and emphasized the copious volumes of writing by Freud. He generally took other people's writings and used them for his own purpose. So no wonder people think Freud coined the term unconscious. He was just the first to organize a school of psychology. Few dispute that Freud was instrumental in the development and acceptance of psychology as a science. Freud's book, The Interpretation of Dreams, was published in 1899, Although he got the publisher to say that it was 1900 because then that was the dawn of a new century and somehow it would seem progressive. The book is filled with symbols that appear in dreams and the meaning of symbols. I pored over this book for hours as an adolescent to help interpret my dreams, which were usually about some boy I liked. However, I did have very strange dreams and some weird paranormal events, which I'll really discuss in a later show. And this book was a tool I used to make sense of the events. Freud argued that there are two levels of dreaming. The first is manifest content. That's the part you remember, and it holds very little meaning. It's disguised representation of true thoughts and underlying dreams. The second layer, or type, is latent content. Now, these are the unconscious wishes and fantasies which have been denied gratification. Dream work is the process by which the unconscious latent materials are transformed into acceptable, manifest content. Symbolism is very important, and fulfillment of a wish is the goal of all dreams. Paranormal dreams are considered psychic or psi dreams. Freud, Jung, Scheckel, and Boss have all asserted the, the existence of psi dreams. Precognitive dreams represent unlikely future events. Telepathic dreams become aware of someone else's current mental state and you dream about it. And Clairvoyant dreams obtain information about location or physical properties of some distant object, but not from someone's mind. Lucid dreams are really interesting, although highly controversial. They're defined as that the dreamer is consciously aware that he or she is dreaming and is able to access the conscious attributes of memory and volition, while participating in the events and emotions of the ongoing dream. Aristotle, in the 4th century BC, stated, Often when one is asleep, there is something in consciousness which declares that what then presents itself is but a dream. Distinguished by the enhanced sensory imagery that appears in them, the vividness and intensity of the visual auditory images suggest a heightened awareness of the external environment in lucid dreams. Awareness of self also seems to be heightened. If dreaming is considered to be an altered state of consciousness... Are lucid dreams then considered an alternate state of dreaming? Often used to deal with conflict in the gestalt viewpoint, lucid dreams are defined as such. Various figures encountered in the dream are components of their personality. If the dreamer hurts or kills a character, it intrapsychic suicide. Dialogue helps to insight and leads to maturity. The internal self-helper, the ISH, who is invited into the dream to help, is common in MPD therapy, um, multiple personality therapy. Jung proposed that the unconscious consciousness moves in the direction of individuation and transcendence but such development requires a long gestation movement doesn't occur in a linear fashion high tide is reached only after many waves advance and recede the example that immediately popped into mind was Kirsten in Night Elm Street where she asks others into her dream in his book The Demon Haunted World Carl Sagan discusses the connection between demons and dreams. as they sed- as demons seduced The incubi, which are demonic seducers of women, and succubi, demonic seducers of men, were perceived as a weight bearing down on the chest of the dreamer. Mare, despite its Latin meaning, is the old English word for incubus, and nightmare originally meant that the demon sits on the chest of the sleepers, tormenting them with dreams. Part of the reason that children are afraid of the dark may be that, in our entire evolutionary history up until just a moment ago, they never slept alone. Instead, they nestled safely, protected by an adult, usually mom. In the Enlightened West, we stick them alone in a dark room, say goodnight, and children often have difficulty being in the dark, and we don't understand why they are sometimes upset. It is good evolutionary sense for children to have fantasies of scary monsters, given what our ancestors had to fight for survival. If we are capable of conjuring up terrifying monsters in childhood, why shouldn't some of us at least on occasion be able to fantasize something similar, something truly horrifying, a shared delusion as adults? Sleep paralysis is an interesting thing. It happens in the time between fully awake and fully asleep. For a few minutes, maybe longer, you're immobile and acutely anxious. It feels like a weight, as if someone is sitting on your chest. Heartbeat is quick, breathing, and labored. Auditory and visual hallucinations of people, demons, ghosts, birds, animals occur, and these are common sleep occurrences, and they're behind most accounts of alien abduction. An article in Scientific American stated that the dream appears to be somehow connecting up or weaving in the new material in the mind, which suggests a possible function. In the immediate sense, making these connections and tying things down diminishes the emotional disturbances of arousal. In the longer term, the traumatic material is connected with the other parts of the memory systems so that it's no longer so unique or extreme. The idea being that the next time something similar or vaguely similar occurs to you, that connections will already be present and the event will not be quite so traumatic. This sort of function may have been important to our ancestors, who probably experience trauma more frequently and constantly we do. At least those of us living in the industrialized world do at the present. Thus, we consider a possible, although certainly not proven, function of the dream to be weaving new material into the memory system in a way that both reduces emotional arousal and is adaptive to helping us cope with further trauma or stressful events. So, what do dreams mean anyway? A simple Google search for dream meaning or interpretation yields many hits. It seems that Freud's idea of the dream dictionary is a popular one. However, it's my experience that dreams can be perplexing and complicated, and a simple definition in a dream dictionary just doesn't seem to help. From the National Sleep Foundation website, sleepwalking, formerly known as somnambulism is a behavior disorder which originates during deep sleep and results in waking or performance, performing other complex behaviors while asleep. It is much more common in children than adults and is much more likely to occur if a person is sleep-deprived. Because a sleepwalker typically remains in deep sleep throughout the episode, he or she may have be difficult to awaken and will probably not remember the sleepwalking incident. Sleepwalking usually occurs more than just walking during sleep. It's a series of complex behaviors that are carried out while sleeping, and the the most obvious is that of walking. Symptoms of sleepwalking disorder range from simply sitting up in bed and looking around, to walking around the room or house, to leaving the house or even driving long distances. It's a common misconception that a sleepwalker should not be awakened. In fact, it can be quite dangerous not to walk a sleepwalker. The prevalence of sleepwalking in the general population is estimated to be between 1 and 15%. The onset or persistence of sleepwalking in adulthood is common and is usually not triggered with any significant underlying psychiatric or psychological problems. Common triggers for sleepwalking include sleep deprivation, sedative agents including alcohol, febrile illnesses, and certain medications. From sleepdeprivation.com, sleep deprivation is a common condition that affects 47 million American adults, or almost a quarter of the adult population. Symptoms can interfere with memory, energy levels, mental abilities, and emotional mood. A study conducted by the University of Chicago Medical Center in 1999 indicates that the condition drastically affects the body's ability to metabolize glucose, leading to symptoms that mimic early-stage diabetes. In 1965, Randy Gardner, a 17-year-old high school student, set the apparent world record at 264 hours. It's about 11 days without sleep for a science experiment. From Scientific American, a study was done to determine if sleep deprivation is dangerous. They found that sleep deprivation causes significant deficits in concentration, motivation, perception, and other higher mental processes as the duration of the sleep deprivation increased. Nevertheless, all experimental subjects recovered to relative normalcy within one or two nights of recovery sleep. By the end of Gardner's experiment, he had experienced these deficits. I actually have a lot of experience with sleepwalking, I would imagine, and sleep deprivation. It's pretty much my, uh, all of my school years are spent in sleep deprivation, but I used to have a lot easier time recovering back when I was a teenager than I do now. It seems to be kind of different, but I did some sleepwalking from the time I was maybe 13 until about 16, which is a really common time period. And then it just kind of ended. And since then, I haven't had that problem. But I would not really remember anything the next day unless I happened to wake up while I was actually sleepwalking. But I one time um, actually found myself in my closet. One time I was in my kitchen, and that was actually kind of a dangerous situation because I had a knife in my hand. I think I was trying to cut something. And I woke up. My cat woke me up. And another time, and this is the most bizarre, and I think this is probably one of the last in- instances I remember, I actually... It was March, and I was not wearing any shoes, I wasn't wearing proper clothing, and I found myself sleepwalking, um, and I woke up on a major, major intersection in town. Um, The only reason I woke up was because teenagers were driving by and were honking the horn at me, and I didn't even know it, and I woke up, and I'm in the snow, and it was very cold, it was the middle of the night, and I had locked myself out of my house. And I think that was probably about the end of it, but I know there were probably other instances I just don't remember, because it's very common not to remember. If you ever (laughs) did any sleepwalking, you are not alone. Let's move on to nightmares. Nightmare as a term is too vague and nonspecific, but researchers use two categories. One, REM anxiety dreams. These are dreams with anxiety-producing content reported after REM awakening and it's usually experienced during the latter part of a sleep cycle where the dreamer has detailed recall of content. Number two is night terrors. These occur during the first two hours of sleep stage four, and yields minimal or no recall. If there is recall, it's usually a single frightening image, a scream is frequently preceding the awakening, and a dreamer is disoriented for 10 to 20 minutes after. A night terror is not really a dream because of the difference in autonomic nervous system changes. So it's described as a disorder of arousal by psychologists. It's most common with children, and as they grow older, the frequency drops. So let's move on to A Nightmare on Elm Street. Now, there are other films that have used the concept of dreams, but I'm really just going to focus on this one series. So let me give you a brief introduction to the series for those of you who may not be familiar Um, Nightmare on Elm Street was released in 1984 and was written and directed by Wes Craven. The central character of the films is a supernatural serial killer named Freddy Krueger, played by Robert Englund. Freddy is able to attack and kill people through their dreams and does so with considerable violence and gore. (laughs) Whatever happens to someone in their dream happens to them in real life. Kind of like Vegas, huh? The series' effectiveness can be attributed in part to the relatively inspired nature of its villain. Rather than a simple murderer or any other kind of fil- villain who might exist on screen, Kruger exists in dreams and thus could hypothetically attack anyone, even in reality, which is a theme explored in the final film of the series. The generic location of Springwood is akin to Springfield and the Simpsons, a very common town name and intended to be in every small town in the world. As Kruger himself states, every town has an Elm Street. Over the years, Freddy has become a cult figure with his burned face, red and green striped sweater, brown hat, and the metallic glove with sharp knife blades attached to the fingers. In the original film, Kruger was a nearly silent, remorseless killing machine. But as the series progressed, Kruger became a progressively more wisecracking and black-humored character. Like I stated before, dreams and sleep and nightmares are very important to the premise of the film. In fact, the entire premise is based on this concept that you can be killed in your nightmare. In real life, the person's death looks like a suicide, so as to not arouse suspicion. Their interesting ideas were incorporated into the film, such as the idea that you can bring other people into your dream. Not just dreaming about someone, but actually sharing a dream with another person. The characters tried everything to not fall asleep, and sleep deprivation often was responsible for their inability to beat Freddy. They would often chant or sing to themselves the infamous rhyme to stay awake that I started the podcast with. And one of my favorite scenes is in Nightmare on Elm Street number 3 when Kincaid was in the quiet cell and chanting to himself, Ain't gonna sleep, ain't gonna dream no more, no more, ain't gonna dream no more, all night long I sing this song, ain't gonna dream no more. They also incorporated myth and legend into the films to try to explain how Freddy does kill in his dreams. For example, Nancy's character returns in the third film as a therapist who has been studying dream and dream inhibitors. There's some discussion using medication to suppress dreams, and is this a good idea? Do we need a dream? Some theories are contemplated which you do not see in other horror films. In fact, in most horror films the characters are there to be killed and provide entertainment, and there's little or no theorizing or character development. In these films, you actually get to know the characters and even and some even live to be included in the sequel. This is what makes Nightmare on Elm Street more interesting to me and why I've seen these films more than any other horror franchise including Friday the 13th. Now, as far as casting, Robert England was not the first choice to play Freddy Krueger. Actually, they wanted a stuntman to play the part, but as the character turned more into an acting role, England was chosen. And the series managed to feature many up-and-coming young performers before their rise to fame, Notably, Johnny Depp, Patricia Arquette, and Lawrence Fishburne. Now, let's go over some trivia and cultural significance. You know, Freddy is a household name. Everybody knows Freddy Krueger. You go to a store around Halloween and there are masks everywhere. And it's just really interesting to see how much of the other films in the genre are influenced by it. Or you'll see references from, you know, about Freddy in other films. Wes Craven named his main character Freddy because he had a bully that terrorized him whose name was Freddy when he was a child. And he came up with the idea for A Nightmare on Elm Street while he was sitting at a restaurant in 1978. He had recently read three separate articles about people who had nightmares and then later died in their sleep. In Nightmare on Elm Street 1, Evil Dead is being shown on a TV in Nancy's room. This was Wes Craven's way of repaying Sam Raimi for putting The Hills Have Eyes in the basement scene in Evil Dead. The bathroom scene was not included in the original script, but was rather the brainchild of Jim Doyle special effects. The tub was built over a swimming pool and Jim Doyle in scuba gear performed as Freddy's glove. Wes Craven's original concept for Freddy Krueger was considerably more gruesome, with teeth showing through the flesh over the jaw, pus running from the sores, and a part of the skull showing through the head. Makeup artist David B. Miller argued that an actor couldn't be convincingly made up that way, and a puppet would be hard to film and wouldn't blend in with live actors, so these ideas were eventually abandoned. In the scene where Glenn is sucked into his bed, there's a picture of Saturn on the wall, referencing 2001 A Space Odyssey. In a Mr. Bean episode called The Curse of Mr. Bean, he goes to the cinema with his girlfriend to see A Nightmare on Elm Street, but it plays out differently. By the time of the film's second sequel, Freddy was already a household name, appearing on t-shirts, masks, action figures, candy, magazines, trading cards, and much more. In fact, I always wondered about that because, yes, I was a child when I was a fan of these films, but most kids weren't a fan of this kind of film. It was mostly the teenagers and adults who it would appeal to more. And I always wondered why they made children's toys from Freddy Krueger. I mean, he was kind of a creepy-looking guy. The role of music is interesting because, generally speaking, and of course there are exceptions, horror films tend to have scores, not usually popular music playing. But in these films, they did. For instance, Dawkin had a song called "Dream Warriors," which was the title track to Nightmare on Elm Street Number Three, and they made a music video incorporating clips from the film. They put the video at the end of the VHS tape, which was not common practice at the time. And it was a great video. I really like it, and I like the song. It's um, it's catchy, and if you're a Dawkin fan, um, you probably know the song, of course. And I even bought the soundtrack from Nightmare on Elm Street Number Four, which turned out to be a very '80s <laughs> uh, CD, but it was quite good. And Rama's song "Anything, Anything" was played in that film, and it's a regular on my iTunes. And I used to hear it all the time on San Diego's ninety-four point nine indie rock station as well when I lived there. They played some really great film or music in the films, and it's very dated to the 1980s. But um, it just—it wasn't just a score or some creepy music. It really was more of a mainstream film, which I think is just really different from most other horror films. It combined dark comedy and drama and had a good balance to the gore and violence. In fact, there was progressive humor as the series went on. Um, Some of the characters were killed in very interesting ways, not your typical sort of Jason Voorhees, just slash and kill people. You know, people turned into bugs and all sorts of interesting things. So um, the films, if you haven't seen them, or if you haven't seen all of them, go out, rent them, you know, have a marathon and have some friends over. They're fun, not necessarily the scariest. The first one is the best. Didn't like number two, but then they started to get better from there. Um, Loved three and four, and then five and six were a little bit down from there. So this is a good time for a break. I am so pleased to play tonight's song title and registration by one of my favorite bands, Death Cab for Cutie. Enjoy. Nightmare on Elm Street grossed $25.5 million in the U.S. The entire series grossed $216 million in the U.S., with Nightmare on Elm Street number four, The Dream Master, being the most popular grossing $49.4 million domestically. So what has Freddy been up to since Final Nightmare? There was a TV series called Freddy's Nightmares that fre- Fred- featured Freddy introducing scary stories involving the nightmares of the citizens of Springwood in the style of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The show managed to produce 44 episodes over the course of two seasons before being canceled. In 2003, the Kruger character was pitched again Jason Voorhees from the popular Friday the 13th film series in Freddy vs. Jason. The film was immediately the most financially successful film in either series. It cost $25 million to make and grossed $47 million in its opening weekend. Several propositions for a sequel to the film, including additional characters from other horror franchises, has been proposed. Several ideas were played around with, but nothing has come from them. According to an interview with Englund from March of 2006, New Line Cinema has been in talks with Carpenter concerning the film. In the same interview, Englund discusses A Nightmare on Elm Street The First Kills, a prequel documenting Kruger's child-killing years set before the events of the first film. The prequel is currently under review by New Line Cinema, but already has a director attached, namely John McNaughton, who directed Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. But you can find Freddy on DVD. I bought the 1999 DVD box set, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection. It has all seven films and a bonus disc with an encyclopedia and a few other features, mostly DVD-ROM for a PC and I have a Mac, so I've not been able to view them. Last month, New Line came out with a new special edition of the first film with new features. The box set is the DVD version of the 1996 LaserDisc when it was remastered. The new DVD has some new features, but I don't think I'll buy it since I have the box set. I might get it from Netflix just to see what the difference is, though. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. There were so many things that I could have covered in this episode, and I did a lot of reading and preparation. Most of it I didn't even talk about. Just this topic is so fascinating to me. But I don't want to bore you. The next episode will cover the films of M. Night Shyamalan, just in time for sort of this fall Halloween... type time when um, Shyamalan's films move right up to the top of my must-see list. If you have any topic suggestions or just want to say hi, feel free to let me know. Um, I have heard from a few of you and it's great. I love the feedback. I, you know, I, I have a good time with this podcast, but I want to know what you guys want to hear. I'll talk to you soon. You can email me at darkgatehorror at and don't forget to visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com.